ladies and gentlemen and welcome to a romantic valentine's episode of straight talking english str8 talk english on twitter straighttalkingenglish.com youtube slash straight talking english i am this close to finishing the byron video but my last clip messed up so we will have a new youtube video up very 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 soon buy my books buy my books amazon full context i'm 20k into the poetry one you love my updates i'm sure you do and patreon slash straight talking english really every penny hat counts especially with the toing and throwing from london since i've got to redo this byron clip honestly if my camera hadn't messed up i would have been very happy so thank you in advance for contributing towards my oyster fees a couple of little bits more admin before i tell you a very very romantic valentine's story today first up as you might be able to hear i have a bit of a stinking cold luckily this is an audio only medium so you cannot see how disgusting my hair is right now but apologies in advance if i'm a little bit more nasal than usual and there might be a little bit of chopping and changing in the audio if i have a coughing fit other bit of admin i've got to say thank you to some very 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 helpful people who honestly have been fantastic i want to say a massive thank you to alex from the mythological throwback thursday podcast who was our voice actor reading byron top fella pop voice actor I want to say a massive, massive thank you as well to Elizabeth from the Your Fave is Problematic podcast and FMK All Day, another top, top, top podcaster. Thank you so much for your help and support in the episode on Byron. So yeah, if you want to listen to other podcasts which aren't mine, I mean, you're free to do that. It is only half hour a week. Check out Mythological Throwback Thursday, Your Fave is Problematic, and FMK All Day. So let's do a romantic Valentine's story today. Love is in the air. And I know this is out of order, but I'm going to tell you the very, very romantic story behind Sonnet 29 by Elizabeth Barrett Browning and honestly warmed my heart a little bit when I was reading up about this and I really wanted to share it with you today on Valentine's Day. The other reason I want to tell you a little bit about Elizabeth Barrett Browning is because she really 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 reminds me of me and I was reading all about her and I was like oh my days oh my days it's like me if I was Victorian and it was just a hideous mirror up to my own life so I I like her I like it when a historical figure gets on with you so before I get to the romantic bit which you can guess is going to be the meeting between Elizabeth Barrett Browning and her husband Robert Browning we have to go back in time a little bit to the year 1806 King George is on the throne and a young lady called Elizabeth Barrett Moulton Barrett she would shorten it to Elizabeth Barrett Barrett was born she was the oldest of 12 children they lived in a country estate in Herefordshire everything was sort of idyllic little country town in the middle of nowhere and it's all nature and freedom and this like self-reliant family group this is what barrett remembers from her childhood when she was explaining it later we lived four miles from their roots through all my childhood and early youth in a turkish house my father built himself crowded with minarets and domes and crowned with metal spires and crescents to the provocation, as people used to observe, 
of every lightning of heaven. Once a storm of storms happened and we all thought the house was struck, and a tree was so really within 200 yards of the windows while I looked out. The bark rent from the top to the bottom, torn into long ribbons by the dreadful fiery hands and dashed out into the air over the heads of other trees or left twisted in their branches, torn into shreds in a moment as a flower might be by a child. Did you ever see a tree after it's been struck by lightning? The whole trunk of that tree was bare and peeled, and up that new whiteness of it, round the finger mark of the lightning in a bright, beautiful rose colour. None of your roses brighter or more beautiful. The fever sign of the certain death. Though the branches themselves were for the most part untouched, and spread from the peeled trunk in their full summer foliage, and birds singing in them three hours afterwards. And, in that same storm, Two young women belonging to a festive party were killed on the Morven Hills, each sealed to death in a moment with a sign on the chest which a common seal would cover. Only the sign on them was not rose-coloured as on our tree, but black as charred wood. So I, I get possessed sometimes with the effects of these impressions, and so does one at least of my sisters in the lower degree. And oh, how amusing and instructive all this is to you! When my father came into the room today and found me hiding my eyes from the lightning, he was quite angry and called it disgraceful to anybody who has ever learnt the alphabet, to which I answered humbly that I knew it was, but if I had been impertinent, I might have added that wisdom does not come by the alphabet, but in spite of it. It wasn't always that great, though. She did lose her mother quite young. She lost her mother when she was 22. However, Elizabeth, since basically as old as she could remember, always knew she was going to be a poet. She was 12 when she wrote her first narrative poem, The Battle of Marathon. Her dad supported it. And when she was 14, he paid for her to get, to get it printed, which would be lovely. I mean, if my mum and dad are listening, you're more than happy to contribute to my writing costs. But I'm being nice about Mr. Barrett Senior because a little bit later he is not going to be the favourite person. So, Elizabeth is always, well, she's pictured in a lot of light biographies and stuff as being this invalid, this, you know, perpetually on the sofa, oh, my spine, and stuff like that. And it kind of is true, but it also isn't. So, in 1821 when she is 16 she becomes ill she starts taking opium by prescription delicious delicious opium and over the years she has an increasing number of medical conditions we're not quite sure what they are today because like a lot of stuff doesn't really translate into modern medicine she definitely had a spinal condition she definitely had an issue with her lungs because it's now believed that it was abscesses on her lungs which caused her death and there was definitely all kinds of stuff going on she also didn't really help herself and in no way am I condemning someone who has mobility or long-term health conditions and doesn't follow you know the perfect regimen the reason I'm saying this though is she insisted that all she needed to live was black coffee and we've all been there we have all been there like i need the coffee i need it 
Um, a bit later when she did get with Robert Browning, he prescribed a really like healthy diet for her, like good nutritious food and manageable exercise and less opium. And she began to feel a lot better. But because she was in this position of like insisting I need the coffee and the opium and nothing else, it didn't help her out a lot. We're saying that from benefit of hindsight. And I'm saying, like, again, one of the points where I'm like, I am Elizabeth Barrett, is um, my boyfriend, who was briefly on a couple of the early podcasts, has Italian heritage. And the second we started living together, and he started making me North Italian food, and I just sort of stopped living on lattes and hope and cake. (laughs) I began to feel like a million times better. So I can get when you're in this situation of just sort of being trapped. The other thing is, it's because she decided she never, ever, 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 ever wanted to get married. And a way to exert that power is by kind of placing yourself out of the equation, right? So... She wanted to live this life as this, like, independent, intrepid poetess, as people would say in those days. And a way to make sure that you can live that life is to make sure that you have your own world, your own sphere. We can argue today that she might have had some kind of social anxiety because she hated people. She Not, not people, she had a lot of friends, but she hated parties and socializing and all of this she tried to get a very preludy poem published when she was 20 called an essay on mind in which she charts her own growth as a poet and everyone ignores it it gets no attention her mum dies and she decides she wants to be more So she starts to study classical literature, Latin, Greek, I think she did some Hebrew as well. She is an insanely good classicist. And she starts doing this kind of like tutoring correspondence course, distance learning type thing with this fella called Boyd. Even though she said, I never, ever, ever want to get married, she would have these mad intellectual or annoying pretentious people on tinder called sapiosexual where you're attracted to someone's mind she started having these kind of like flings with older men like it would never be anything physical or even expressing affection but she would fall in love with these older men that offered her knowledge and then it was all these kind of like dramatic things so she wasn't you know she wasn't completely not considering the dating game but it was all about knowledge poetry nothing else her family were getting a lot of their money slash most of it from the slave trade i'm just gonna put it out there even though um her family were not the people who actually like loaded slaves on and off of ships they owned i think it was her uncle owned an estate in the caribbean so when family members were involved in quote unquote the family business they would be doing and throwing from the uh, plantations in the caribbean she is of course the oldest so there are a lot of brothers and sisters in the mix unfortunately well (laughs) it's one of these like you know silver lining uh slavery is abolished which is awesome and we have this uh, emancipation movement that means the family's income goes down which means less available for liz to buy books and pens and paper but you know more freedom so that means they have to sell this family home and they have to move to 
Devon. Another thing to point out about Elizabeth is she had mad attachment paranoia. Like she would not like it if one of her family went away. She would cry and get really upset that things were happening and she did, wouldn't know where they were. She also didn't handle change very well. I will point out I cannot handle change at all. I'm sure I've mentioned it before but I have um severe ADHD that's actually diagnosed and recognised and not just like me being twitchy. As a result I can't handle change. I'm gonna be moving house in a month and I'm already like oh, I can't do this. I can't do this man. Can't move house. And so my solution has been so to avoid this, to avoid confronting my fear of change, I've been saving up um every time I work with a student for cash money, not uh, like a transfer, like cash in hand. I've been putting it in a shoebox uh, and I've nearly filled up the shoebox and I'm just going to throw, throw six months worth of change and the odd note at some delivery guy and be like, look, make the moving happen so I can just sit here and be upset about change. Which I don't think is actually solving the problem. And I think whoever I hire is just gonna be like, why are you giving me a sheet box full of 10 Ps? At which point I'm just gonna keep shouting. To be honest, I feel like the, the solution to this is keep shouting. It did not work for Elizabeth because she insisted that the family stay united and all the screaming was not gonna make that sweet, sweet slavery money come back. By 1835, they had moved to London. After Devonshire, she published her second book of poetry and it still had got no notice, right? But she's not gonna give up. They ended up living somewhere called 50 Wimpole Street, which I'm led to believe is not too far from where Mr. Jekyll's house is supposed to be. So think yourself back to my last season. Think yourself back. Very respectable, very nice. She ends up being almost completely immobile for a while because she um her lung condition flares up but she has a cousin who is somewhat involved in the literary world and starts introducing her to people he introduces her to wordsworth he introduces her to edgar Allan poe he introduces her to some of like her absolute besties and this is kind of a really interesting creative period for her. She publishes a book called The Seraphim. And her whole kind of vibe is that if a woman is married, she has, she was, that's kind of her accepting her place in society. A woman will always have to compromise if they get married. And I don't think that's right. I'm going to stand up for women who've had to lower themselves for the sake of a marriage. And this theme comes up for the first time in this work. It all goes a teeny bit wrong though. Again, it's silver linings. Her, fa her uncle dies, sad. Elizabeth is now financially secure in her life and can do what she wants. 1840, her brother dies. Uh, he drowns and is never found again. She goes into a very, very, very deep depression. She experiences suicidal ideation. She's in a terrible place in her life. She is writing a lot. She's writing about child labour a lot and how it is bad. Edgar Allan Poe writes an introduction for the American translation of her poems. And it's kind of all this sort of mystique that's built up. She is, you know, this reclusive genius poet. And she's a relatively ordinary chick. 
I mean, aside from the poetic genius, she's 5'1", she's got long dark hair, she's living in London, she's got a pet dog, but she's built up this wonderful mystique. She hears of a young poet called Robert Browning. He's going to be the subject of my next episode, so I'm kind of glossing over a lot of this because I'm going to come back to him properly next week. He is about 5'5". Five five. It's weird threads throughout all of the anthology poets, actually. Most of them are really, really short. Um, like, a lot... Owen's 5'5". Five five. Like, a lot of them are famously small. I'm just... I find it really odd that this is a thread that goes through it. But anyway, she meets... Well, she hears of the beautiful Robert Browning. He is a massive, massive fanboy of Shelley. He even went vegetarian for a little bit to be like Shelley. He is a bit of a snappy dresser. It's all moustaches and cravats, and he has like an almost spherical facial hair. I love it. And she writes in a poem of the three great genius poets of her age, and they are Wordsworth, Tennyson, and Browning. It's quite a bold statement considering as Robbie B hadn't really had that much success and most people thought he was incomprehensibly weird and wordy. But he heard about this and he thought, I'll write her a little thank you note. And this is a thank you note he wrote her. I love your verses with all my heart, dear Miss Barrett. And this is no offhand complimentary letter that I shall write. Whatever else, no prompt matter of course recognition of your genius and there a graceful and natural end of the thing. Since the day last week, when I first read your poems, I quite laugh to remember how I have been turning and turning again in my mind what I should be able to tell you of their effect upon me. For in the first flush of delight, I thought I would this once get out of my habit of purely passive enjoyment, when I do really enjoy, and thoroughly justify my admiration. Perhaps even, as a loyal fellow craftsman should, try and find fault, and do you some little good to be proud of hereafter. But nothing comes of it all. So into me has it gone, and part of me has it become, this great living poetry of yours, not a flower of which but took root and grew. Oh, how different that is from lying to be dried and pressed flat, and prized highly, and put in a book with a proper account at top and bottom, and shut up and put away, and the book called a flora besides. After all, I need not give up the thought of doing that too in time, because even now, talking with whoever is worthy, I can give a reason for my faith in one and another excellence, the fresh, strange music, the affluent language, the exquisite pathos and true new brave thought, but in this addressing myself to you, your own self, and for the first time, my feeling rises altogether. I do, as I say, love these books with all my heart, and I love you too. This marks the beginning of courtship between them kind of a weird and unusual one to be honest it's mostly conducted by letters she saw him once a week for 15 minutes on a sunday at one point he pressed ahead and said i like you and she was like nope 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 backing away backing away backing away but then he built up the trust again have a listen to some of their letters back, for, back and forward, read by our amazing voice actors, James and Coel. And tell me if you can't see the love or hear the love developing between these two people. 
To go back to the view of life with the blind hopes, you are not to think, whatever I may have written or implied, that I lean either to the philosophy or affectation which beholds the world through darkness instead of light and speaks of it wailingly. Now may God forbid that it should be so with me. I am not desponding by nature, and after a course of bitter mental discipline and long bodily seclusion, I come out with two learnt lessons, as I sometimes say and oftener feel, the wisdom of cheerfulness and the duty of social intercourse. Anguish has instructed me in joy and solitude in society. It has been a wholesome and not unnatural reaction. And altogether, I may say that the earth looks the brighter to me in proportion to my own deprivations. The laburnum trees and rose trees are plucked up by the roots, but the sunshine is in their places and the root of the sunshine is above the storms. What we call life is a condition of the soul and the soul must improve in happiness and wisdom, except by its own fault. These tears in our eyes, these faintings of the flesh, will not hinder such improvement. And I do like to hear testimonies like yours, to happiness, and I feel it to be a testimony of a higher sort than the obvious one. Still, it is obvious too that you have been spared up to this time the great natural afflictions against which we are nearly all called sooner or later to struggle and wrestle, or your step would not be on the stair quite so lightly. And so we turn to you, dear Mr Browning, for comfort and gentle spiriting. Remember that as you owe your unscathed joy to God, you should pay it back to his world. And I thank you for some of it already. Also, writing as from friend to friend, as you say rightly that we are, I ought to confess that of one class of griefs, which has been called to the bitterest, I know as little as you. The cruelty of the world and the treason of it, the unworthiness of the dearest, of these griefs I have scanty knowledge. It seems to me from my personal experience that there is kindness everywhere in different proportions, and more goodness and tender-heartedness than we read of in the moralists. People have been kind to me even without understanding me, and pitiful to me without approving of me. Nay, have not the very critics tamed their beardom for me and roared delicately as sucking doves on behalf of me? I have no harm to say of your world, though I am not of it, as you see. And I have the cream of it in your friendship, and a little more, and I do not envy much the milkers of the cows. How kind you are, how kindly and gently you speak to me. Some things you say are very touching, and some surprising, and although I am aware that you unconsciously exaggerate what I can be to you, Yet it is delightful to be broad awake and think of you as my friend. May God bless you. Faithfully yours, Elizabeth B. Barrett. Dear Miss Barrett, I seem to find of a sudden. Surely I knew before. Anyhow, I do find now that with the octaves on octaves of quite new golden strings you enlarged the compass of my life's harp with, there is added to such a tragic chord, that which you touched so gently in the beginning of your letter I got this morning, just escaping, etc. But if my truest heart's wishes avail, as they have hitherto done, you shall laugh at east winds yet as I do. 
See now, this sad feeling is so strange to me that I must write it out. Must. And you might give me great, the greatest pleasure for years, and yet find me as passive as a stone used to wine libations, and as ready in expressing my sense of them. But when I am pained, I find the old theory of the uselessness of communicating the circumstances of it singularly untenable. I have been spoiled in this world, to such an extent, indeed, that I often reason out, make clear to myself, that I might very properly, so far as myself am concerned, take any step that would peril the whole of my future happiness. Because the past is gained, secure, and on record, and, though not another of the old days should dawn on me, I shall not have lost my life, no. Out of all which you are, please, to make a sort of sense, if you can so as to express that I have been deeply struck to find a new, real, unmistakable sorrow along with these as real but not so new joys you have given me. Dearest, you know how to say what makes me happiest. You who never think, you say, of making me happy. For my part, I do not think of it either. I simply understand that you are my happiness, and that therefore you could not make another happiness for me, such as would be worth having, not even you. Why, how could you? That was in my mind to speak yesterday, but I could not speak it. To write it is easier. Talking of happiness, shall I tell you? Promise not to be angry and I will tell you. I have thought sometimes that if I considered myself holy, I should choose to die this winter now, before I had disappointed you in anything. But, because you are better and dearer and more to be considered than I, I do not choose it. I cannot choose to give you any pain, even on the chance of its being a less pain, a less evil, than what may follow, perhaps. Who can say, if I should prove the burden of your life? For if you make me happy with some words, you frighten me with others, as with the extravagance yesterday. And seriously, too seriously, when the moment for smiling at them is past, I am frightened. I tremble. When you come to know me as well as I know myself, what can save me, do you think, from disappointing and displeasing you? I ask the question and find no answer. We've got to ask ourselves, why didn't they just get together? She was nearly 40. He was 33. She was well into old maid territory. So why didn't they just go for it? Well, the answer is her dad. Daddy dearest. Did not believe in his children getting married. For him, his family was enough. He didn't need anyone outside this intensely close family. So why would anyone else? Why would his children? In fact, her sister was in a similar position. She had a crush on someone and the guy liked her back. But they couldn't do anything. If Elizabeth had gone public about her affair with, well, with about her relationship with Browning, she would have been cut off from her family forever. She would be dead to them. She would have no backup. She would be written out of her dad's will. That's it. Gone. She had about a year, a year and a bit, of this intense romantic friendship with Browning. And in the end, Browning just said, I've had enough. We either get married and we do this, or this is it. And apparently, I read this somewhere and I don't know if it's true, but it's a lovely thing. She asked for a carriage to take her to Regent's Park and 
just got out the carriage, stood there in the sun, feeling the light on her skin, and then got back in and started packing. They knew instantly, whether they admitted it or not, that their love was the real thing for them. They got married very, very secretly in a church near Hampstead. He'd been waiting for her at a designated street corner. Her maid had helped smuggle her out and they ran off and got married. They knew they would have to elope. They could not stay in England. The first place they went was Paris, middle of the night. Eventually, they made their way down to Italy. It gets a little bit sad now. Her brothers were initially very angry with her, but in the coming years, they did relent. Her sisters were not angry with her, and indeed, one of her sisters, the one with the crush, actually did a really similar thing. The dad sent one letter, you are dead to me, goodbye, and that was it. So even though she was now with the love of her life, who dedicated himself to looking after her, to making her as healthy as she can be, she still couldn't quite have it all. It's really sad. But she found herself in an incredible period of creativity and happiness for the first time ever. They both described this period of their lives as being incredibly happy. She becomes really involved in politics, in the idea of Italian unification, because as I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about next week, her and Robert feel this intense unity, this intense bond with the country of Italy. And they lead this sort of wandering life. We'll do a couple of months in this apartment, couple of months in this place. She's got this legacy that comes from slave money that is supporting them. And she has this maidservant. Even though she is, even by our standards now, a little bit older than the average for considering children, she does try to have a family with Robert. And they do, say, sadly suffer two miscarriages. But on their third attempt, their son is born, nicknamed Penn, even though his real name is Robert Barrett Browning, which is awesome. And everything kind of looks really good and this is where we get on to our sonnet because this is the bit that makes me go squeak so robert browning discovers his mum has died back in london he is away in italy and he has a very very deep depression depression in the medical sense both the both the barrett brownings suffered from mental health issues and robert found himself in a very dark place elizabeth took him for a weekend away to the countryside so you've got to picture this beautiful idyllic italian hillsides picture perfect and there's a little little cute kid running around and they sit down and have a little picnic. It's just the two of them. The son is with the nanny. And she says, don't you think it was funny that I write poems about relationships all the time, but I never wrote any about you? And he says, oh, that that is a bit weird, isn't it? And she produces from her bag an entire set of sonnets in order 
chronicling their relationship and said I've been writing these since the day we met they're one of the few things I smuggled out of England in my bag I didn't tell you because I was waiting for a time like this oh my god my heart melted it's so beautiful but if you'll notice if you look into this it's not published in a book that's like i love robert browning robert browning's so awesome she calls it sonnets from the portuguese and there's literally nothing to do with portugal in it because this is a sneaky cover-up if you call it sonnets from the portuguese it implies it's like some oh yes i have translated these from from an anonymous person and it's a massive cover-up so no one will realize about their secret fallings in love when she says i think of thee it's because they only see each other for 15 minutes a week it's because these letters are their romantic lifeline it's because she's pretty much housebound she's not interacting with nature at all she's thinking about her little day trips out to the park that she does that's why it's so beautiful because we we have this image of elizabeth reclining somewhere looking at one of browning's letters that you heard earlier just imagining he's right there and she could just reach out and cuddle him oh makes me so happy so she says like i'm thinking of you when i read the letter but actually your letters are next to my soul oh it makes me so happy so yeah that's the romantic story Ah! in terms of their love they are happily married until the day she dies she publishes other poems she publishes a book on italian politics called casa guide windows she publishes a novel in verse quote unquote called aurora lee it portrays an independent woman who is an artist and a single mother and as a result it gets lot of attacks criticism but it's super super popular she is we don't know if it's serious or not like it might be joking it might be being silly whatever she is mentioned in a journal as a potential candidate for laureate however wordsworth gets it she is however one of my favorite facts she is the person to whom the raven by Edgar Allan Poe is dedicated when it was first published Poe loved her he thought she was the absolute number one tip top and she is the person to whom quoth the raven nevermore is dedicated however at the time she publishes Aurora Lee her dad has died and never forgave her she pops back to england and would see her sisters and hang with them and introduce her little son to his cousins dad wanted nothing to do with it sticking to it you're dead he was deeply religious um but not the kind of religion that apparently includes forgiveness which i always find slightly ironic she by 1860 her work has become incredibly political and she starts getting 
ill. She knows for a while that she is going to die. And it is heartbreaking that Robert saw her health declining and he was just trying to make her comfortable and make everything good. She died aged 55 in Florence and is buried in the Protestant cemetery in Florence. And I blooming love her because she actually had it all. She had the career that she wanted. She had the man that she wanted. Admittedly, she met him a little bit. Maybe not as soon as she could have wanted. She got a family. She got to see the world. And she did not let her illness hold her back. I I love it. I love Barrett Browning. She is just fab. And the thing is, she was kind of, like, forgotten for ages. Until the 1960s, first wave feminism starts looking back at these wonderful female writers including Charlotte Mew, um, and rediscovering what they had to say. So in some ways, she is quite a new addition to interesting scholarship. And in some ways, she's been around forever. And partly the reason this story connects with me so much is because I met my bloke, who is the love of my life, him indoors, when I was 30. I only met him two years ago. And this idea that, like, waiting and then sort of giving up and then being like, oh, well, I guess everyone else is married and I'll just chill now. And then you think, well, I guess I will do my own thing then because I'm not going to wait around for someone. And then they show up. (gasps) Love it. So... Happy Valentine's, everybody. I hope that if you want someone to get you a rose or a box of chocolates, they have. If you don't care, that's awesome. I hope you have a nice day, whatever it is you're doing. And I hope you enjoyed the story behind Sonnet 29 from the Portuguese. Yeah, blooming right. It was written in um, Marleban, but we'll say it's Portuguese, in it. Next week, I'm coming back to you with Robert Browning. I shall be telling you all about Porphyria, which I keep wanting to sing to the tunes of the Lumineers Ophelia. Oh, Porphyria. And I will probably just be singing that all day now. Cheers. And I'll be talking about the Duke in My Last Duchess because they are actually written in the same collection. So I'm going to do double context for both. Have a lovely, lovely week. StraightTalkingEnglish.com, STR8 Talk English on Twitter. Full context series on Amazon. And very soon it will actually have more words. YouTube slash Straight Talking English, Patreon slash Straight Talking English. Hope you're enjoying my anniversary new content. Right, I'll speak to you next week, guys. Have a good one. Bye.